Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. Happy summer. Oh my God, it's really, it's, it's happening. It's hot. <laughs> Y'all don't know this, but in order for me to um, record in my house, I have to turn off all the air conditioners. <laughs> so you can imagine me while I'm recording sweating. <laughs> so that's what's happening right now. Um, anyway, uh, I'm really, really happy to have my friend, Dr. Christine Cocciola on the podcast today. You may have seen uh, Christine and I do a uh, Instagram live along a while ago about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I really, 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 we're going to link to that in the show notes. And I really, 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 really would love it if you would go watch it. Um, I think there's a lot of education that needs to be done um, regarding that case, and it's really important. And I think um, we talk, we touch on it in this episode. So, um, Dr. Christine Marie Cocciola is a coercive control advocate. She's an educator, a researcher, and a survivor. She's a college professor, and she teaches social work and she has for the last 20 years. Her expertise is in the area of intimate partner violence, trauma, and child abuse, developing and presenting workshops on these topics, both nationally and internationally. She is a board member of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. She supported policy codifying coercive control and has a small private practice primarily serving victims and survivors of coercive control. She's the creator of the Protective Parenting Program, supporting protective mothers on their journey in healing with their children. So, She's an expert. <laughs> She's amazing. And um, I am so honored to be collaborating with her and learning from her and bringing her incredible wisdom to you guys. And every time I every time I talk to Christine, I'm I'm blown away and we just we jive. So as usual, um, it's a really wonderful and robust conversation. And so here, is my conversation with Dr. Christine Pachola. Christine, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about coercive control. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I mean, I feel like this is just the most enormous topic and it is so complex. It's so hard to to pinpoint, to understand, prove, right? So let's start with, so what do we mean by coercive control? What is, what does it mean when we, when we talk about coercive control? Sure. Yeah. So coercive control is not always non-physical, but it 
truly is an identification of abuses that may not be physical. And so that might be psychological abuse. And, you know, um, when we say psychological abuse, that's just so many things, by the way, right? It's right, right. like mm-hmm. it's manipulation, gaslighting, it's intimidation and isolation. It's it's just so many things. Um, and then it's also could be legal abuse. It could be financial abuse. It could be sexual abuse. And it definitely could be use of the children as pawns. So mm. it's really this, I, I would say, What's important, and there's so many things that are important in this conversation, yeah. but the primary thing <laughs> cover them all. is that, yeah, domestic, the foundation of most domestic abuse, and I use the words abuse because it's not always violent, okay? It's not always mm-hmm. physically violent. There may be other violence yeah. occurring, verbal assaults and things like that, but coercive control is the foundation of most domestic abuse, and there's there's a misnomer out there that Domestic abuse is not these other things that are intangible when actually it's most often these things that are intangible. And when someone is being coercively controlled, they're actually at the greatest risk for violence and or death because coercive controllers are attempting to retain control, power and control in a relationship. Yeah. Um, and that's why, I mean, yes, like you can't have financial abuse without coercive control. You can't have physical abuse without, uh, finance, without coercive control, right? Like it's, it is the, the underlying foundation of all forms of domestic abuse. Just about. So it's interesting because we do have like a kind of like two categories. We have this thing called situational violence and it's when, you know, two people, are in an argument and they have what I would call maladaptive coping where they just, they get physical when they're mad. And so maybe one person gets physical and the other person doesn't, but here's the thing. It's not based on power and control. So I don't want to jump ahead, but it almost makes me think of this Amber Heard case, right? Because when she was physically violent with Johnny Depp, that was a maladaptive coping. That was a, I feel trapped. I don't know what to do. When I'm angry, I fight back. This is what I do. Mm-hmm. But but there was not for her this desire to have power and control over him. Right. And that's the difference. So, so very... There are some cases of situational violence. It, it does occur yeah. where two people, mm-hmm. one person, they just don't do a good job of dealing with their emotions. And so they fight back. But again, it's not based on power and control. Coercive control is the foundation of most. And that is when it is based on power and control. Yeah. Okay. Great distinction. Very important. Thank you. So, so many questions. I kind of want to jump into the Johnny Depp uh, Amber Heard. I mean, I actually do want to jump into that a little bit because I do think it is such an, in a fascinating case study. Now you and I are on the same page. We've had many conversations about this, but, um, it's an incredibly fascinating case study, uh, for all sorts of like, right. There's all, it's kind of got, it's got everything in it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, was so you're saying that Amber Heard was perhaps not uh was not uh 
perpetrating coercive control, right? It was a maladaptive response. Mm -hmm. What about Johnny Depp? Yeah. So we have, there is a pattern. If we look at this relationship over the long term and we look at prior relationships that Johnny has had, there is a pattern of him being jealous, of him um, being uh, like accusatory and also of shaming. Lots of shaming. Now, people will say, um, I, I just did this article in Medium, but people will say like, oh, well, she shamed him. You know, here's the thing is that she wasn't trying to annihilate him. He literally was looking for revenge. Coercive controllers, when they begin to lose control, the number one thing that they seek is revenge. And so, it wasn't about her trying to get revenge, but it was about him trying to get revenge yeah. over and over and over again. I mean, the things he said, the way the negative social media campaign was, there were just so many things. And, you know, we talk about her being physically violent and then her minimizing it. Yeah, sure. She minimized it. This, people do that all the time. You push someone, they're like, oh, I didn't hurt you. You know, people do that all the time. He put his hands around her throat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it right there. He, Boom. He, he said things like you, um, you don't exist. He said, you will be globally humiliated. And this is, by the way, this is when she actually went to him and said, let's just leave this all to the side. After she gets her restraining order, she says, let's not make our personal life public. She actually pleads with him and he says, no. You want global humiliation, you're going to get it. So in other words, a victim, a victim is going to be someone who doesn't really wants to like, let's just walk away from this. Let's just not make this a huge deal. A perpetrator is going to do everything they can to get revenge. Mm -hmm. And that's, mm -hmm. I believe, exactly what played out in this situation. Like multiple ways, yeah. <laughs> multiple strategies over and over again. Over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she's still walking upright at this point is oh my a God. goddamn miracle. <laughs> I, I, the way that she was questioned on the stand and humiliated over and over again, I don't know how she did not lose her shit, to be honest with you. I don't know. I don't, she is an extremely strong woman. And I would say, and we've talked about this already, but in, in previous discussions, she's not likable in many ways. You know, I mean, people expect victims to behave a certain way. So, you know, she didn't fulfill what the what people want from a victim. And so because of that, there was this significant retaliation that she had to deal with. And um, I mean, I think probably if I could think of all of the negative players in that case, besides him, right? And besides an attorney that's willing to actually support him after the UK said 12 out of 14 offenses actually occurred. But that woman, I won't even mention her name, who was promoted. Um, and also Shannon Curry. I mean, she violated ethical guidelines over and over again. In that which, case, which one was she? She was, was the forensic. Case? She was the psychologist. The psychologist who did oh. a eval on Amber. Oh, right, the dinner. one who diagnosed her with mm. um, with histrionic personality disorder, and then went out to dinner with Johnny Depp. Actually, <laughs> went to dinner with Johnny before. She oh, was before. even hired at Johnny's house. At 
at Johnny's house. She couldn't remember mm-hmm. if she had a drink or not, but she had dinner um, with lawyers, et cetera, before she was hired. That is a, like, I just don't even understand why the APA is not outraged in pulling her license or sanctioning mm-hmm. her in some way, because that is considered such an ethical violation. Mm. <laughs> not to mention her diagnosis, which is oh. pathologizing. Yeah. Histrionic personality disorder is not, it's not a thing, right? So many of these diagnoses we now know, right, Mm -hmm. are based in trauma. Mm -hmm. And so, and then people will say, so I always try to give the other side. People will say, well, you know, Johnny's behavior, if people are going to call him a narcissist, let's just say his behavior is based in trauma. Yes. Okay. But abuse is a choice. Controlling someone is a choice. Right. Global humiliation is a choice. Not suggesting that people back off is a choice. Creating a negative social media campaign is a choice. He made choices over and over and over again that mm-hmm. clearly demonstrate a desire for power and control and annihilation. He used those words. He used those words. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, so what is the what is the sort of the global impact at this point of this? I mean, we're talking about this case. You and I have been talking about this case for months um, because, you know, we had a very the people who work in the arena of um, domestic violence, intimate partner violence. Um, we were all watching this very carefully, very closely because we were kind of we were terrified of what happened happening. Um, Can you speak to why we were so concerned and why we are concerned and what we're seeing in the aftermath already? There, you know, I think it's Dr. Jess Taylor who has talked about this idea that the stronger that one particular group of people get, like women who are Mm -hmm. trying to empower themselves and speak out more about domestic abuse. I mean, child abuse, you know, like sexual abuse, rape, all of these things. There has been a movement, of course, hashtag me too was part of that, but there has been a movement to really vocalize all of these abuses that have happened as a result of, you know, I'm going to say the word that people like uh, as a result of patriarchy Mm -hmm. and you know, well, so that's sorry, not, I talk about it all the time on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it's it's not like again, that's not all men. It's not, you know, no, patriarchy harms men, it harms boys and girls all of the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so there's this movement. And and the stronger this movement becomes, the stronger the the opposing movement is going to become. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. I I, I've been saying that for, for years at this point, right. That like the more we rise up and the more we're saying no more. And I think, I mean, I think that me too was, was a really a watershed moment for this. It was like, it was a, it was a sharp, like a hairpin turn Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it has, And so, yes, the, you know, and this is, this is systems theory, right? Like we start to rise up against it and it's going to try and get stronger and stronger and stronger to try to, uh, to fight against our strength. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think this kind of feels like maybe it was one step forward. Now it's two steps back, but does this also create a space where we have to get louder? Like as loud as we've been, we haven't been loud enough. Well, no. Right. And I think, you know, the impact on this, right. The problem that we have with this case 
is the number of people who, who just blindly supported Johnny feminists, women, right? I mean, listen, he was my heartthrob. He was my teen heartthrob too. So, but you know, the danger here, I feel like there, I think the reason it's taken such a, a taken us so far back is because there was a, there was a blindness to it. There was a, well, she was, she's not likable. She wasn't the perfect victim. She, you know, all of those things. And, but at the end of the day, this was a defamation case. This was about, are we allowed to speak up? And she didn't even name him. I know. She didn't even say his name in the document that she was accused of defaming him in. So, you know, it's implied. Okay. But now we're not allowed to, now we're not allowed to say anything. It feels, it's certainly, it certainly feels like that, doesn't it? It feels yeah. like cornering again. Yep. And, yep. Um, and, you know, she wasn't likable, but the reality is that, I mean, he hasn't been likable. Like, I guess that's, that's my question to like listeners who maybe don't agree is, is this is not just about physical violence. And so I think that one of the things I've noticed in social media as I've been, you know, when I write my opinion and oh my gosh, the vengeance, as you know, that comes back. Oh, uh-huh. yep. um, and so what I think is going on is there's a level of ignorance and, and that doesn't mean people are stupid. It just means a no. lack of education right. about this, that this is the, the foundation of most domestic abuse. And if we look at the pattern, this man was 23 years older than her. He had fame and fortune. Okay. And, you know, people are like, well, she used him. She was allowed to bring everybody she wanted to the penthouse. Of course. So listen, we, we all like take advantage of good situations, not because we're trying to take advantage of somebody. And maybe she was trying to take advantage of him, but that does, that's not relevant. What's relevant is that he had a position of power and control in the relationship since the very beginning. And he had it with other partners too, by the way. So this Mm -hmm. is who he is. Yes. This is who he He's is telling her what jobs she can take, what oh jobs gosh. she can't take. She was not allowed to work with James Franco because he had a, you know, a bug up his ass about and being it's, jealous. And so she was, she had to turn down roles because. Absolutely. And he right? threatened so, her. He said, you're not going to be successful without me. Like you need to be dependent upon me. Exactly. Exactly. And by the, so by the way, who's hampering, you know, who lost money? Who like her her career wasn't enhanced by him. It was actually no. held back. Well, she right. Had, and, right. She got plenty of offers that he would not allow her to take. And then if we fast forward to the end, he said it wasn't really about the money. Well, we know it wasn't about the money. I mean, really, it, it wasn't about the money. It was about just annihilating her in some way. And of course, in that, there's going to be financial ramifications. I mean, he had a public trial. He chose, like, this is, she didn't want it in Virginia with a public trial. I mean, let's just go on to the jury wasn't even sequestered. I mean, oh my God. Right. Yeah. They were, (laughs) oh my God. She talked about that in the Dateline. She was, uh, she was on Dateline um, this past week when we're recording it. But, and she and Savannah Guthrie asked her about that and was like, you were, so the jury wasn't sequestered. Do you, you know, do you think there was this, there was a social media you know, these TikToks that people, I mean, shocking 
replaying the abuse, Mm -hmm. doing videos with her crying and like saying that she's lying. I mean, so hideous. And she said, she said, of course they saw it. How could they not have? Right. How could they not have? It was everywhere. It was everywhere. And that was his intent though. We know that, right? We know that he was behind that. Yes. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, what do we know about that? What was he doing? Well, I think he was able to, it's called bots where you like hire, like, I don't know, artificial intelligence to go in there and to actually like create like an algorithm so that every time my daughter <laughs> was online, she was seeing these videos of Amber Turd, you know, um, and, and saying very clearly, you know, that Amber was the abuser. And, and so, you know, isn't it interesting that whenever we went online, we didn't see all of the times we didn't see over and over again, his verbal assaults and diminishing her over and over again. Those did not pop up. No, they did not. Yeah. So that's what he did. So he put all of this money apparently behind Mm -hmm. um, the bots. He, he, he paid. Yeah. It was a very smart move. (laughs) It was right. Yes. But so we were all controlled as well. Manipulative move though. Let's Mm -hmm. be honest here. So that that's, I love that you just said that because the reality is, is that this whole entire um, court proceedings was actually coercive control of all of us. It was systemic coercive control. Yes, yes, yes. We were being coercively controlled by social media. They were attempting by to Johnny gaslight Depp. us. By, right, Johnny, by Depp. Johnny Depp. By mm-hmm. proxy, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's very, it's very interesting. The number of people, the number of women in particular, like in my Facebook group and stuff who um, were just, you know, team Johnny all the way. And I was just like, wow, wow. Cause these are women who are in these situations in their, in their own marriages and in their own life. I think what's been going on is that people say that she gives victims a bad name, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So if I'm a victim and 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 she is making victims look like liars and like coke snorters and all these other things, then she's minimizing my experiences as a victim. And the problem is again, it's a level of education about understanding that if you if you if we unpack this entire case down to bare bones. There was only one person in a position of power and control from the very beginning, long-term and continuously. He could have, he could have called off all of those pariahs many, many times. That's right. Not. That's right. So, so I, I get that people feel offended and worried. And then there's the whole Darvo thing, right? Like, so, you know, um, she's claiming victim, but really he's the victim. And, you know, what we know about Darvo um really clearly. And so like what I would say is we heard Amber apologize for her behavior. We heard her take responsibility. Mm-hmm. Offenders he, never take responsibility. Never um, just for listeners who don't know about Darvo, let's, um, can you uh, talk more about that? Break it down. Sure. So Jennifer, yeah, yeah, Jennifer Freed in like 1997, she's from the University of Oregon. She came up with this theory and she was able to prove it through research that there is a pattern of behavior um, that occurs when people, and originally she was talking about like child abuse. Like, I mean, how, 
like we know this. So um, I used to be the state of Connecticut educator on child sexual abuse. And it was called the stranger, you know, because 93% of time offenders are known to children when they are sexually abused. Okay. So Jennifer was able to determine that there is this deny, attack, reverse victim and offender that occurs. That's DARVO, the acronym. And that when children come forward and say, you know, so-and-so abused me, what does the offender do all the time? She's a liar. That never happened. Look at her calling me that. This person's going to ruin my career. All of these things. And so, um, and so now what's really great is this, so this is, this might be a positive, one positive thing from this trial is that we're talking about Darvo more, is that we are recognizing that abusers flip the narrative over and over and over again. This is what they do. Mm-hmm. And so how can we tell the difference? How can right. we tell the difference? Is it right? Is it Amber flipping the narrative or mm-hmm. is it Johnny flipping the narrative? And my guess is we tell the difference. By again going down to the root, mm-hmm. right? Which is who has power and control? Who has power and control? Who apologized? Who begged for this not to happen? Who said, let's not bring this into the public arena after she got a restraining order for being physically assaulted and having a bruise on her face? Okay. So there were things that she did along the way that proved that she really was trying to minimize this, even though she was certainly upset. And even though she was willing to do a Washington Post op-ed, we get that, right? But but there was never a part of, there was only in his brain, how do I annihilate her? That That's really all his focus was. How do I annihilate her? And he said it out loud. Like we don't, we're not, you know, we're not inside Johnny's head. He, it was right out loud. He said, I am going to wage a global war against you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he used the word annihilation, humiliation, and you don't exist. And now a word from our sponsor. You guys all know Annette Oltmans, who's been a guest on the podcast a few times. Annette is the founder of The Mend Project, which seeks to bring clarity and validation to victims and survivors and to provide tools and resources for those who are responding to abuse. I first met Annette when she did a presentation on emotional abuse for my 40-hour domestic violence advocacy training, and I immediately fell in love with her and the MEND project, and I sought them out for collaboration right away. Then I registered for their training on responding to abuse, and I got to tell you, what they're doing over at the MEND project is incredible, and I think everyone should do their trainings. Their comprehensive training curriculum provides deep instruction on psychological abuse, double abuse, complex trauma, how to identify your own trauma and whether you're being abused, and best protocols for responding to victims and those who cause harm. So they have broken up their trainings into three different cohorts. So they have now a a separate cohort for victims and survivors, uh, another training for responders and advocates, and another one for counselors and therapists or other professionals who are seeking CEUs. So you can get your continuing education credits um, by taking their training for professionals. So there are trainings coming up soon. Head on over to kateanthony.com slash mend, M-E-N-D, for more information and to sign up. And truly, no matter which training might be right for you, 
I really recommend that you take advantage of the amazing work that they're doing over at the MEND Project. Again, you'll find links to all three trainings for victims and survivors, for responders and advocates, and for counselors and therapists over at kateanthony.com slash MEND. And now back to our episode. How do coercive controllers gain control? How do they retain control? Like when we're in it, like how do we see, what is the pattern that you see that we can learn from? It's so nuanced. And even the most astute of us have missed the signs. I mean, I think, um, you know, something that I'm a little bit open about and public Mm -hmm. about is that, you know, I taught on this topic my entire life. I'm a domestic violence, sexual assault counselor since the age of 19. And I, all I can say is that when you're in it, it's very nuanced and it's difficult to put your finger on. It really is because it's a slow progression. It's not this bang, I have control over you. Not always, it could be. And I think that that's the important thing to point out to people is that you know, you may look at, okay, this is coercive control. And, you know, you may say, um, it wasn't that intense, then I'm not a victim. And that's Mm. not the case. I think what's really important to understand is that there are variations of this and it happens so slowly and often insidiously. So insidious. I always use that word. I always use that word for it. It's insidious. It, It really is. It's, it's such a perfect word for it. And, you know, insidious and the goal of the abuser is to slowly wear away at your autonomy, at your ability to know what you should know. Like, so in other words, if it was, if it was like this, if it was really super fast and quick, you'd be like, whoa, something's going on. Something's wrong. Right. You exactly. <laughs> right. If like all of a sudden someone was yeah, say, saying horrible things to you or whatever, right. You would, if it right. was black and white, you would see it in technical. Right. right. <laughs> right. And mm-hmm. so then, right. That goes back to the whole physical violence thing. If they had hit you, you might be able to say, whoa, what happened here? Right. But because oftentimes what we know with coercive control is it may not be violent, right? Physically violent, although the violence might be the last act. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a slow progression. And the problem is, I'm going to kind of backtrack a little bit. Let's talk a little bit because I think it helps to understand the nuances of the abuse is if we understand these abusers and their pathology, okay? Mm-hmm. So abusers, very often, if we're talking about people who need power and control, We're not talking about the situational violence. There's certainly trauma, no question about it. Um, But abusers probably grew up in a home, very likely, where they did not have a strong attachment to one caretaker who loved them unconditionally with positive regard. So that attachment for them was very conditional. And their ego never developed to have a strong sense of self. They didn't. So listen, we all have self-esteem issues. Come on. Right. We all have self-worth is like, I I, like when people say you have low self-esteem or like not me, but like in general, when we use that, it's a spectrum. It's like, it's not just, you might have low self-worth, like with wearing a dress, but you don't have low self-worth when you go to work and you're writing on the board or whatever it is. You know what I mean? So we Mm -hmm. all have self-worth issues. The issue with these individuals 
is their ego is so compromised, so, so compromised. It's so devastating, honestly, when we think about it, that they can't even acknowledge where they have self-worth issues. That, That acknowledging that brings up so much shame from having conditional love. You are good if you do this and this for me. Mm-hmm. You are bad if you do this. And right. so children in their developing phases need to have that strong attachment to one person who no matter, I don't care what they do, they are loved unconditionally. They might have a, a disappointing behavior, but they are not a disappointment, right? And so it's getting a little bit down the rabbit hole of experiences of children, but when children grow up in a home where maybe they're told their father's evil, your father's nothing but a piece of shit, he's horrible, all of these things, remember that that father is half, that child is half of that father. Right. Right. And, and so they you internalize say, that. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. And so yeah. you could say that behavior that happened to you the other day by your dad, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I wish that didn't happen to you, but you're not bad, right? So there's appropriate responses and inappropriate responses. So these abusers grow up this way where they're hiding who they really are. And because Mm -hmm. of that, they have this fake facade where usually they're people who everybody loves, right? They have this, you know, successful careers. They're or not so successful. It doesn't, I mean, the point is, is that they have a facade. And, And so they... The only way that they are able to retain feeling okay is if they have control. And so they insidiously make sure that they manage the control with the victim, right? They just just insidiously do that in a way that the victim maybe feels loved. Oh, he cares about what I'm wearing or, oh, um, he's worried about me. He's checking up on me. Or, oh, how did he know where I was tonight? Oh my gosh, maybe I left a note and he looked at it. Oh my gosh, he really loves me. Like there's all of these nuances of behavior, but really that's what helps him feel good. And then the moment that the victim, the shade begins to lift, Mm -hmm. she starts to see things clearly, he intensifies. And that's when she really gets to see who he really is. And by that point, she's, she's so far in, she loves him so much. She knows where this comes from. So if only she could love him just enough, Mm, she could fill that void for him and then Mm. he'd be okay. Right. Right. And very often I know in my case, right. I was even told, right. Like I, I just, I don't love him correctly. I don't, if I would just do this, you know, this one thing, if I could do it this way, then, right. And this is the moving target scenario, right. Mm. Where if you just do it this way, then I'll feel loved. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that's your job to make me feel loved. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, God, for God help you. If you go into an Imago therapy relationship with your abuser, right. Because like, you're being told like, well, it's your, it is your job to fix me. And so I, and so you try and you try and you're bending yourself into pretzels, but the target moves because it's not yours to fill. Right. Right. And what I would say is that, first of all, a couple of things that there's a lot of times I'm a, I'm a clinical therapist Mm -hmm. and, um, there, I, 
went to therapy with several therapists and, and basically it was my anxiety or I needed to do X and I needed to do Y to fix things. Mm-hmm. And so I call it the gaslighting by therapists because yes, therapists who true. are not adept at understanding the nature of the coercive controller, who's going to come into therapy performing like, yes, like an A student. Oh yes. I mean, and, they are so, no, no, they're so willing, right? No, no, no. I want to hear, tell me, tell me what, what I can do to make this better. Right. I mean, some of them, some of them are just awful in therapy. I hear stories. And I'm right. like, he's wow. He's not even trying to cover it up. Right. But the like really good ones who oh, are the malignant really, covert, right? mm-hmm. they like, they will put on a show. Yes. Yes. And then you're the victim is is crying and maybe upset and emotional and also feeling like something, there's a word salad going on here, something I can't follow. And I don't know what he's saying, but I can't fix it because this is the thing. They're so good at manipulating conversations, right? right. Mm-hmm. That then we're like in this, like, I mean, it's like, it feels like it's like you're going through this tornado and you don't even understand what's really going on. And so then you can't put your, and so let's just like for a moment, pull back and talk about trauma, because if you are living in this situation, you're so confused, you're trying to fix it. You're don't know what's really going on. And then the cognitive processing for you is going to be in some ways compromised because of the traumatic experiences. So, you know, there's a trauma bond that's created with this person mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm. you know, it, there's just those little pieces of good, the little intermittent reinforcement. Some people call them breadcrumbs, right? So you like grab onto that really tight. And then there'll be like, you know, five horrible behaviors, but then that one good one, and you're going to come back to it because why? Because the brain's number one job is to keep us safe. Number one job is to keep us safe. And if something feels good, it feels safe. So we're going to latch on to that positive thing because that memory, whatever it is, that one thing, you know, he's really good with the kids today, or he made a great dinner for you and he, yet yesterday he was, he was behaving, whatever. Yeah. Like, (laughs) yeah. Like, I mean, and again, like I, it's so important that it's very, it's very different for every abuser, right? I mean, they, your abuser may not be a rager. Your right, abuser right. may not be a person who is blatant, you know, mm-hmm. about their behavior, but they come home late and you ask and they're like, mm, I told you I was coming home at this time. And you start questioning yourself. So there's these little insidious little things that when you look back, you're like, oh, holy shit, that was happening for a long time. Right? Right. Yeah. Right. So. Yep. I think um, that it's just important to understand, again, that just because maybe you and I are giving examples in here and somebody else hasn't experienced it, it doesn't mean that they haven't experienced coercive control. Is there one person in the relationship who has more, is, is it an egalitarian relationship? Do you have equal say? Or do you, or do you regularly feel like you have to fix things. You have to make everything better. Are you walking on eggshells? Are you concerned about upsetting the, the, the person when they come home from work? Do you want to make sure everything's perfect? The kids aren't screaming, the diapers are changed, whatever it is. If Ugh. you're doing a lot of that, it's called regulating your behaviors. If you're regulating your behaviors, there's something awry, something that's just not, it's, it's not appropriate. That's right. Yeah. I think we were talking about the characteristics of abusers, right? 
We're like, how do they gain control? Like, oh yeah, we're talking about the process of like, it's not black and white because if it was, we would see it and run, <laughs> right? But there it is, it's this insidious thing. And I think you're right. Like, it's not just, oh, he raged or he, you know, call- this is why some of the 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 language even used on um, the National Center's website about for, you know, verbal abuse or emotional abuse, right? It can be so overt. The examples given are so overt that you're like, I don't that. Oh, maybe, maybe that's not what's happening. Right. Because he's not telling you out loud that you're a piece of shit. Right. Usually. I think think the problem is though, and you just, you just totally pinpointed on this. The problem is, is how do you explain something that nobody could really explain? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so hard well, I th- to and explain I, it. Yes. And I think that, I think, uh, you know, my, my friend Leanne Oten was on the podcast a while ago. And I think that she, she, she broke down, I think it's eight uh, and it's all eight things. And it's all about how you feel. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not about checking off boxes of their actions. It's, do I, you feel devalued? Do you feel confused all the time? Do you feel right. like you're going crazy? Do you feel like you're trying so hard, but nothing you do is right or good enough? <laughs> do you feel like you apologize? And then he says, you never apologize. Oh, that's a big one, right? Like, oh my God, that was <laughs> mine like, too. Yes. And so I would, that's, I think what I was going to hit on a little bit is that what we know about victims and I, I, people, I don't know if this is offensive. I don't mean to be offensive, but that some victims are perfect prey. And I think that most people who are get engaged in these types of relationships, most people are highly empathic. They're they're beyond the norm of empathy. They also are highly agreeable. Mm Mm-hmm. Conscientious, mm-hmm. want to fix things. They're fixers. They're mm-hmm. optimistic. The glass is always really full. They're not the people that like you're like, oh my god, she's so depressing. She's a Debbie Downer. They're the people who are like, they're optimistic. Everything's, fine. Everything's gonna get. I can and fix things it. are gonna get better. I'm gonna uh-huh. fix it. Things That's are gonna right. get better. And they're also tend to be highly forgiving. They have a threshold, a boundary that for forgiveness that is not the norm. And so what. You're absolutely right. And what your friend describes is absolutely right. I would say that, do you still have the ability, if this was happening to another person that you love or care for, would you say something's wrong here? Because you've lost your ability to know what you should know, because his goal has been to strip away your autonomy, your ability to think for yourself. So now let me ask you, you can't think for yourself, but if this is your girlfriend, would you be able to think for her? And if, and if you look at all of these signs and you start like, so, you know, one, one of the red flags, if you're in an abusive relationship is when you start taping the person, right? Because, <laughs> because like, you're like, am I you're crazy? There, Did something right. happen that I'm not aware of? Didn't I say I was sorry or whatever it is, right? So when you start taping right. the person, you're like, oh, that's a red flag. Why do I need to tape this person I love? Why? Right. Right. Yeah. That is such a big red flag. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you're there, that's, that's a sign. That's a sign. So, okay. So those of us, I mean, I think you're right. You basically just described me to a T the overly (laughs) empathic and agreeable, like, you know, optimistic. I am, I am a relentless optimist in my life. And I don't think there's anything, you know, I'm an idealist too. Right. And I'm, these are things about me that 
I wouldn't change because, but I'm also now educated and aware and I can spot things. Now, those are also symptoms of codependency, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I can work on my codependence as I have for the last 20 years, um, 23, I think at this point, um, I can work on my codependence and still retain those things that are really beautiful about me. Right. Mm -hmm. And we should be all be able to do that. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. But so, so how do we, let's say moving forward, let's say for the, for the women who are listening to this, who are extricating themselves from a coercive, coercively controlling relationship and they're fucking terrified that they're going to do it again because they didn't see it the first time. They don't think they're going to see it the second time. Um, What advice can you give them? How do we avoid these situations? Sure. So I think I, I think I should mention a couple of things as a precursor to that. It takes on average seven attempts for a victim to leave an abuser because when we leave, What we know now, research is showing us, is that people involved in coercively controlling relationships, 90% of them, the coercive control intensifies into post-separation abuse. So this is when people have technology-facilitated abuse or coercive control, um, you know, which was probably going on. I mean, in my case, it was going on five years before I left, had no idea that I was being monitored in every single way. So, you know, these abusers are already... Um, in in, um, in taking on ways to retain control, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we leave, it even even gets worse. And so I just want to say to all the victims out there that we understand why you stay sometimes. If you can leave, we hope that you do. We hope that you find a world of support. It takes a village to leave. It it definitely is not a one-person show. It takes a village to leave. And what you're doing in this work is so important. And I'm grateful that people like you are doing this. Um, so I would say that, um, you know, I created a a webinar that I haven't posted yet, but it's called, where's your line? Mm. Where's your line? So like, what is it? What are the signs that would make you say, Hmm, is this healthy any longer? Or is this maybe going over into unhealthy? And if it's going over into unhealthy, are you seeing a progression of it getting even more and more unhealthy? Right. And so it's so important that victims make decisions about where their boundaries are. Right. And that no one has the right to tell you what to do or how to behave or how to dress. No one has the right to call you crazy. We live in a social media world where our young people are being exposed to all kinds of abusive behaviors online. That's wrong. And so it's really important that before you engage in relationships and before our children do, that we are having conversations about what's healthy and what's not. And if it's not healthy, then you don't need to be a part of that relationship. There's other people out there that you can engage in relationships with. Right. It's really important that we begin to have those conversations. And more it's and more. really, yes, absolutely. And it's really important too that we, don't, you know, and this is what I see over and over and over again, is that, you know, we don't dive headfirst into relationships with people that we simply don't know. And we feel like we know them and we feel all these things. Right. And so it's really important to not um, dive headfirst 
into Mm -hmm. new relationships, to date, to keep our, you know, you want to do everything possible to keep your discerning brain uh, alive and active. Um, Because when you get swallowed into relationship and you, you know, think that you're in love when you've, you know, been dating this person for three weeks, Mm. you miss shit. (laughs) Yeah. So I would say I heard once from, um, uh, a famous doctor, uh, and when she was, she used to have a radio show back in the day, but she said that you never bring anyone home to meet your children until you've been with them about a year, because it takes about that long to figure out who they really are. That's you don't right. really get to see someone's true colors in the first six months, in the first four months, you don't. No, and so, and you, everyone's you know, on great behavior. You, Everyone mm-hmm. can be on great behavior, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, for a limited period of time. Absolutely. Yeah. I always say that. I say you never, you don't know anyone until you've been with them for, uh, for about a year. That's what I say. I say the same thing. Same thing. Yeah. Slow and steady. <laughs> and it's so hard for those of us with big hearts and oh. we're so empathic and want love and want to be loved and like, you know, all of that. It's hard. Yeah. Well, I, I like to say that the people who end up in these relationships, if we had more people like this in our world, I mean, sure. this is, these are the, these are the, I mean, these are good human beings who want the best for everyone. And that's why they stayed so long because these people don't want to hurt another human being. They want to believe the best, the best, even in someone who's really making them feel kind of crazy. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and, you know, as they always, as they say, you know, we don't, want the relationship to end. We just want the abuse to stop. Right. And so when we're given those breadcrumbs that lead us to believe that the abuse is going to stop, we want to believe it because we mm-hmm. want the relationship. Oh, it's all so much. Let's switch a little bit to legislation, right? Because in the UK and some other countries, uh, coercive control has been, and in some states, coercive control has been made illegal. But as we know, <laughs> like it's really hard to prove. I mean, it's like, if you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law with evidence, <laughs> like, yeah. what are we going to do? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, the really interesting part is in the UK, it's also criminalized. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's a criminal offense and there have been arrests and there have been people who have gone to jail for coercively controlling a partner, which is just amazing. amazing. Um, it is. so yeah, we have five States now in the United States who have codified coercive control as a form of domestic violence. And the word violence is what's used in all of the, um, legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, how are we going to prove it? Well, I think like, for example, in the state of Connecticut, we have Jennifer's law that's named after two Jennifers who were murdered um, by their coercively controlling partners. And um, that this idea that if if we can just keep invoking the words Jennifer's law, like if we can keep saying, your honor, this is an example of Jennifer's law, then we actually begin to educate lawyers and judges. And actually that's something I'm doing. I'm going around and doing lunch and learns with lawyers and explaining to them just what course of control is and a little bit about Jennifer's law. I'm from Connecticut. So, and Uh I do it in an hour because the idea is, is that I think again, 
there is a lack of information. It's not that people are dumb. It's that people just don't have the tools. They don't have the information to understand what coercive control is. Right. And so, you know, how do we prove it? Well, what we know is that that you can now like show a series of emails that have been, you know, um, I mean, in my case, I had 3,000 harassing, threatening emails over 13 months. And I'll tell you, listeners, this, I was afraid to go to the police because I didn't want to report yeah, and, right. and that's, the police. Sure, right. That's the same. Almost everybody says that, right? So I don't want to. So, I don't want to call. I don't want him to lose his job. I don't uh, want him to. Want, right? Yeah, right. So, so this idea that um, you know now we can say, okay, look at your honor. I have all of these emails, or I have these voice memos. Um, so we there like in, in Connecticut, we have something that highlights that if there's frivolous filings, if there's a lot of motions, mm-hmm. there's frivolous filings that a, a judge can make a decision to sanction that. So, you know, so these people have been engaged in child custody disputes. Um, that's a whole nother conversation about the impact on children, but the, the child. We're going to have that. We're going to have that. <laughs> You're coming back and we're going to have that conversation. <laughs> so. so the. um you know, if someone's bringing you back to court for five years or, you know, whatever, that's a, those are frivolous filings, right? So, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. we do have those things on the books and what we need is attorneys to be able to advocate in those moments and those times in court for their client and be willing to invoke the name of the law, you know? Do you know off the top of your head, the five states? Yes. Um, So Washington (laughs) state, California, um, Hawaii, Connecticut, and oh boy, Colorado, Washington, California, uh, Hawaii, Hawaii, Colorado, and Colorado. Yep. Okay, yeah, got it. and Massachusetts is working on theirs now, and they're going to actually include um, an amendment that will include the Phoenix bill, which is what Evan Rachel Wood is pushing oh, for. I don't know if you saw uh-huh. her movie. Yeah. So I have um, not seen her movie. I need to watch that. Yeah, you do. It's really disturbing. And we of Oof. course know now that Marilyn Manson is saying he's going to sue her for defamation. Uh-huh. Of um, course he is. Yeah. Of course he is. Yeah. So, and he's good friends with Mr. Depp, but anyway, that's my sarcasm. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's, are they really, are they really good friends? I'm pretty sure they're but, friends. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Um, of course. So, um, yeah. So they're going to include the Phoenix uh, bill, which is actually creates um, an extension on the statute of limitations. So that if there was right. an abuse that occurred, it can be um, something that you can bring forward later. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think when you asked about like, <sighs> what's the ramifications of this case, it's like people are going to be afraid, you know? They're going to be afraid to file. That's right. There, I mean, there've already been a bunch of, a bunch of cases, right. Where proven there was a California legislator, right. A that so Senator Rubio it? spoke at, I can speak of it now because she, Good. I actually there got a go. call a couple of weeks ago from her legislative office uh-huh. and they said, we need to have um, access to the video that Senator Rubio did for the international coercive control conference. We're having our second international coercive control conference this October 13th and 14th. And we have a great lineup. Um, but in any case, Senator Rubio spoke last year about California legislation with Senator Alex Kazer, who had the Connecticut legislation. And um, Senator Rubio did not mention her abuser, um, but apparently he saw the video. Maybe there's a short window of time. It's on YouTube, maybe. And he saw it and he's now suing her for defamation. Now, he was arrested for physically assaulting her and he had a full restraining order against him. And he 
is filing defamation against her. In what world do we live in that he did this? It was proven there was a restraining order, and now he gets to file defamation against her. It was in the Sacramento News, like I think uh, May twenty fourth or something. Like yeah, that. it was. Yeah, we were we were talking about it behind closed doors. But yes, it was. <laughs> I knew I but, talked to somebody about it. Yeah, it was me. It was me. And and you know the Marilyn Manson thing. I always I always tell the story about Marilyn Manson is that so my mother who is a currently an 80, almost 81 year old British woman at the time it was, she was maybe 70, 72. She was stuck in an airport with Marilyn Manson. They were, I guess they were seatmates. They were sitting next to each other. They were stuck on a plane, something like that for hours. And she talked, she said, Oh, he was so lovely. She said, I met a man. He's a rock star. His name is Marilyn something. And I was like, okay, are you talking about Marilyn Manson? Yes, that's the one. Oh, he was so lovely. He was so polite. And she went on and on and on about how wonderful he was. And I mean, it just goes to show they can turn it on yeah. <laughs> on a dime. Totally. They talked about theater. They talked, right? That that these people are not. I mean, I was going to say they don't all they don't all wear signs, but Marilyn Manson pretty much wears. Signs. Yeah, he does. But they are charlatans, right? Yeah, and they they right. feed off of the um, adulation of other people. So it's really important for them to have this facade, so that that way they can get. So, you know, going back to like what makes someone be an abuser, right? Like if you've had so much shame your entire life and you carry that around, but you cover it up, the only way you feel good is if you're getting quote unquote supply from something else. And so that's why you meet a lovely woman or man, but you meet a lovely person who's going to really make you feel really good about yourself. And by the way, that other person, the the victim is maybe going to be someone who's elevated a little bit in society because it's like your trophy. You know, there's all of those things that come into play. And I would just say that, you know, it's just, I feel like it's just really important to just um, reiterate that even the most astute of us miss the signs. Yes, that's right. You You and I listen. And and I do, I want to, I want for anyone who's listening to, to remember that both Christine and I missed the signs Mm -hmm. for years. Right. And so if you're listening to us and you're thinking, you know, that we're the, you know, the people who, who know about this and teach about this and stuff, there's a reason that we do it. And it's, you know, you're, you're, you're just like we were a number of years ago. And so you can get, you can get out from under it. It's just takes a lot of education um, and understanding about what's happening. And, you know, the other thing that never works because this is what, (laughs) this is what everyone does, right? They're like, oh, I understand it now. I'm just going to go tell him everything I've learned. Yeah. Why doesn't that work? Well, I mean, I think in some ways it empowers him because now he knows that, you know, so now he's going to get even more insidious. He's going to track. That's when he's going to start tracking you. When he thinks that he's losing control, that's when he's going to get worse. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's going to elevate or intensify. Um, So there's that, but also you're not. So this is what I think is so important. Again, I talked about the character. I call it character logical issues of the abuser. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they have certain deficiencies in their, again, their ego, right? And shame and all of these things. They, people like 
they can't change. They cannot change. They're not capable. Very, very few people who have this pathology have the ability to change because well, they don't want to. Well, they don't want to, sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, because they like to have this control. But in other yeah. words, in order to change, I have to admit that I do have shame, That's that right. I do carry, that I there right. I am not perfect, that there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And there's no way on God's green earth they're going to do it, not even if they say they love you and you're their soulmate. And by the way, if they're saying they love you and they're your soulmate, just to be clear, most of these people, most, yeah. not all, are not in one relationship at a time. Nope. They they're are not. not. They're not. They're not. They cannot get enough from one person. That's right. That's right. I will say I have one instance where I have seen um, the bottom fall out and, and the person actually be faced with all of, all of it, all of their shame at once, all of the, right. And these are the people that can, that actually, I think can change who will be like spinning the yarn, spinning the yarn, all the plates, all the plates. But when they hit upon that wall where nobody will let them, everyone in their life is holding them to account and the, the bottom falls out from under it and they actually can no longer uh, spin any more plates. Um, I've seen one person, um, I mean, I've seen it up close with one person, have the bottom fall out from it. And, and that is the path to recovery and the shame the sh- and but I'll tell you it is a it's a dangerous time mm-hmm. for the person because the amount of shame that they are suddenly faced with that they have to uh you know recognize and the amount of pain that they are suddenly seeing that they have caused people mm-hmm. um it's it's a pretty terrifying thing to witness uh, yeah and I would say that that person from you know, some of my own research, I would say that that person is probably not a malignant covert narcissist. Like the malignant covert, yeah, there is no maneuverability. That's right. 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 So this I, I, is a I agree. Has some. So you know, people say uh, uh, narcissist people with these pathologies do not have the ability to empathize. That's not true. We actually know now that there is some gray matter in the brain and they can empathize. So I would say that whoever that person was, they had a higher ability to, to be self-reflective, maybe not self-reflective until they were pushed against a wall. Right. right. But then there's the others. And these are the people, um, the others are the most dangerous, right? These are the people when a woman gets a restraining order, Vitez and Sorensen did a study in uh, 2008, 231 women over the course of 18 months who were domestic violence victims who got a restraining order. A fifth of them were murdered within two days. Jesus Christ. The post-separation abuse, the need for control, these are malignant covert very abusers. Different. That's right. That's right. right. It's a very so, different thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's the problem. You know, it's like, how do we know which where they fall, right? Because, because most of us don't want to believe that our partners fall into that category, right? Because, oh my God, how hard is that pill to swallow? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, Christine, we could talk about this forever. Um, (laughs) um, One last thing, back to the legislation. And I think you said something really important that I want to highlight, which is about, you know, us in particular, educating our attorneys so that the attorney's can educate the judges because judges do not have any 
training in this. They don't want training in this. So it is, it's our jobs, unfortunately. Um, and often if we don't have an attorney, it was, I was um, taught when I had my um, conversation with Lundy Bancroft, we were talking about this, that, you know, that if your attorney is not interested in learning about this, then you learn about it. And sometimes it might be best for you to represent yourself um, because you're going to, to mention Jennifer's law or, you know, or the Phoenix bill, all of these things, right? So the education in your state is so important. It is. It is. And if your state doesn't have this legislation, which many states are trying to get this legislation, which is fantastic. But if your state doesn't reach out to your legislators and say, we really need this in our state, what can I do to help support that? Mm-hmm. Um, because a, enough people, there's Maryland, South Carolina had it on their agenda. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely making its way across the country. And so yeah. it's really great news, you know, I mean, and, but, but as Alex Kazer says, I mean, you know, you can have a law on the books, but unless it's enforced, it means nothing. That's and right. So it's really important that we begin to talk about enforcing it. Amen, sister. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Um, Christine is going to come back and we're going to uh, have another podcast episode with uh, Christine where we're going to talk about uh, kids in abuse situations. So stay tuned for that, everybody. And where can everyone find you on the interwebs? They can go to uh, drcociola.com, but that's a tough one to spell. They can go to, <laughs> yeah, they can go to I know your heart. Um, dot com. I'm on Instagram. Course of control is IPV intimate partner violence. That's what that stands for. Mm-hmm. And I'm on uh, Twitter course of control. So and Facebook too. And all of this will be linked in the show notes, but um, so you guys, and also I, we are, we do, we've done, a, you know, at least one live together on Instagram and we'll probably do more. So just, yeah, that's a good place yeah. <laughs> to find you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.